your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And before I begin, I want to say that the commentaries and sermons on this passage by Dick Lucas and Tim Keller were very helpful to me. So if anything sounds good from this sermon, it uh, probably came from them. But I'm picking back up where we left off in the book of Colossians. Um, and since it's been a while, I'll refresh you. So for two chapters, Paul has been combating false teaching that has unsettled this young church. These false teachers were suggesting that Jesus, Jesus was good for beginners, but if you really wanted to be triumphant in your spiritual life, you needed to implement a list of things that they had in mind, like fasting, all these regulations, mix in a little bit of angel worship. It was just a, a hodgepodge collection of different things, but Paul refutes these false teachers by pointing to the sufficiency of Christ. The fact that Christ is Lord of all, and he is all you need. And so if you're connected with him, if you're connected to him, why seek life anywhere else? That's Paul's logic. And so now Paul could have ended his letter right there at the end of chapter 2 and called it, you know, game, set, match. False teachers refuted, soundly defeated. But he keeps going on in his letter. Why? I think it's because he doesn't want them just to know Jesus so that they can mark the right answers on a theological quiz. He wants the knowledge of Jesus and their relationship with Jesus to bless and enrich every part of their lives. So let's now give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And you say in your word that the unfolding of your word gives light. And so, Lord, we pray that you would shine light in all of our hearts, that we might see Jesus and thereby be transformed and changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A friend of mine recently told me about a pastor who came back to his home church that he grew up in. Um, and he is dearly beloved by this congregation, so he felt the boldness to ask a question I, I probably wouldn't feel the boldness to ask each of you. But he said, raise your hand if you believe God loves you. And so being in the Bible Belt South, everyone raised their hand. And he said, okay, now raise your hand if you live like God loves you. No hands. Why? It's because we can know theologically and academically that God loves us, but we don't always live like God loves us. Other things can feel more real to us. Other things can take our focus away and captivate our imaginations. But Paul wants our relationship with Jesus to animate every part of our lives. So for the rest of the letter, Paul is going to apply the gospel to every part of our lives. Our relationship with Christ, he's going to start there in verses 1 through 4. Then he's going to move to our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with the church, marriage and family, our relationship with work, our relationship with those outside the church. 
But notice where Paul starts in all this. He starts with our relationship with the risen and exalted Christ. Paul is saying that if you're going to know and live like God loves you, you have to make this relationship priority number one. Your relationship with Christ, he's saying, is the fountain of living waters, which waters every other relationship in your life. But the problem with humanity is that we're always getting this backwards. We're looking to various other relationships to be our life in peace, and that never works. And it actually makes whatever relationship you're putting your life in, it actually makes that relationship worse. But if we find our life in Christ and prioritize that relationship above all, we'll know God's love for us and we'll be able to live like it. Or think about it this way. Suppose, suppose you have a sweet tooth and you're trying to resist the temptations towards dessert. What's the best strategy? It's actually to be so filled with good things that by the time the waiter comes and describes how delicious the dessert is, the, the thought of ice cream or the thought of creme brulee actually sounds nauseating. Why? Because you're so full. You're so satisfied. You're, you're already satiated. You're, and it's the same principle here. Paul wants you to be so satisfied with Christ and your relationship with Christ to get all your sustenance from him that you're not tempted to draw your sustenance from other things. So here's the main point I want us to consider in our time together. And it's this, your life with Christ above fuels your life with Christ below. So this sermon is all about your relationship with Christ. And our passage points to three things that we need to do in order to maintain that relationship with Christ. You need to pursue your communion, perceive your union, and preview your reunion. So first, pursue your communion. Look with me again in verses 1 and 2. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things on earth, that are on earth. So notice that Paul basically gives two exhortations back to back. He says, seek the things above and set your minds on things above. Essentially, he's saying, make this your top priority, your ultimate focus in life. Be heavenly minded. Be heavenly focused. And think about this. When Paul exhorts us in this way, he's not telling us to do something that we've never done before. That's because our hearts are always seeking what we find most beautiful. Our minds are always setting themselves on what we love the most. So he's simply saying, set your hearts and minds there, not not here below, above, not below. So there's a slight nuance between these two verbs that Paul uses. First, he says, seek. And so that word seek means, implies a continual pursuit with persevering effort. Continual pursuit with persevering effort. It's a pursuit not because the object of your pursuit is useful to you, but because it's beautiful to you. Simply, you simply want to enjoy the thing itself. It's like what we read in Psalm 27 in our call to worship when David says that the one thing that he desires is to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. 
He doesn't want God just to, to bless him and give him a good life and give him good things that he wants. He wants God himself. He has found God to be altogether lovely and beautiful to his soul, and so he seeks after him. David says it's worth the time, it's worth the effort, it's worth the focus. So when you find something beautiful, you just want to take it in. So have you ever noticed this about yourself in your life, that you need beauty in your life? And have you ever noticed how beauty has the power to transform, to give rest, to enhance your life? Um, I, I shared this illustration with the youth last week, and, and no one got it because no one has yet to read The Tale of Two Cities. So I'll try again. Um, but there's this character in The Tale of Two Cities named Sidney Carton, who is, in, when you meet him early on, he's a slob and he's a drunk, and he doesn't care for himself or anyone else. But then he count, encounters beauty in the form of Lucy, one of the main characters. And that beauty awakens in him a desire to be a better man, to live a better life, to, to live a life for a better purpose. And so beauty begins to transform his life in such a great way that he displays later on at the end of the book, and I won't spoil it because so many people haven't read it apparently, um, <laughs> he displays one of the greatest acts of sacrificial love that I've, I've ever read outside of the Bible. So beauty has that transformative power. So Paul so urges you to, to seek the exalted Christ, to open up your heart to his beauty, to open up your heart to his joy in saving you, and thereby be transformed. So he says, seek with your heart the things that are above, but he also says, seek with your mind. Set your mind there. This means to think on, to fill your mind with his truth, to, to learn more about him. So if you put these two concepts together, seeking with your heart and thinking with your mind, that's just a fancy way of saying pray and study your Bible. And I will grant you one eye roll when I say that because yet again, a pastor is telling you to pray and read your Bible. But look, this is the normal way that God has given, us, given to us to deepen our relationship with him. This is the way to transform your life. This is the way to experience the exalted Christ. It's prayer and Bible study. So now, it's not like a vending machine where you put in a quarter and out comes a heavenly experience. Often what's happening is what Elijah was doing back in the Old Testament. If you think back to Mount Carmel, when he's building an altar. So Elijah himself was responsible for gathering the wood, for stacking the wood, for providing for the, the sacrifice, but he was not responsible for, for what only God could do. Only God could send down the fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. So too, we're called to faithfully stack the wood with prayer and Bible study. We're not called to do what only the Spirit of God can do. In, his, in the Spirit of God's good timing, He'll move in our hearts. He'll give us a glimpse of the beauty of God in what we read or, or through our prayers. But not every time is it, is it going to be an earth-shattering experience. Sometimes it's just going to feel like stacking wood. Um, and what's encouraging is that growth is often imperceptible. You know, we, we don't notice trees growing outside unless there's this long time lapse going on. But there's daily growth there. There's, there's imperceptible growth. And so sometimes prayer and Bible study feels like you're just 
stacking wood. But don't fret. Don't lose heart. Keep seeking him, and he'll always give you the grace that you need. So pursue your communion with Christ because your life above fuels your life with Christ below. So secondly, moving on to our next point, this communion, to maintain this communion, there's something we need to see and understand, and that is you need to perceive your union. So look with me again in how Paul structures verses 1 and then verses 3. He says, if then, so basically that, what that Greek is getting at, he's saying, since, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, and skip to verse 3. He says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So Paul is reasoning with the Colossians to live consistently with who they already are in Christ. He's saying that since you have been raised, since you have died, then this is the lifestyle of seeking and thinking that should necessarily follow. So what does Paul want the Colossians to understand about themselves It's their union with Christ. It's our union with Christ. And that's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of Christianity. Christianity is saying that the way that you are saved, the way that you're forgiven, the way that you're redeemed is by Jesus Christ uniting himself to you, by taking on your nature, your sin, your death, and giving you his life. It's a a death and life that you receive freely from him when you believe in him and receive him as your only savior. You're saved not by virtue of your great works or your resume, but you're saved by virtue of your union with Christ. Meaning this, everything that has happened to Jesus actually legally counts for you. Everything that has happened to Jesus actually legally counts for you. So he died, and you, through faith in him, died as well. He rose from the dead, and you rose with him. Sin and death have no hold on him, so neither does sin and death have any power over you. More than that, he ascended to the right hand of God, the Father on high. That's the place of highest honor and power. And Paul goes even a step further in in Ephesians chapter 2, when he says that you have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places if you're in Christ. And we have to stop and say, what? Like, what's with all the past tense verbs here? Like this, this hasn't happened yet, has it? And so you've got to see that your life is so wrapped up in the life of Jesus. You are so beloved by him. You are so on his heart that it is right for scripture to say, where Jesus is, there you are too. What happened to Jesus happened to you too. You are so gripped and held by him that Paul can say, your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's forever kept, he's saying. It's forever safe. It's forever secure. So Paul's saying, know this. This is where your life is. This is who you are. But also notice that Paul not only positively affirms to us where our true life is, but he also warns us where not to seek our life, not to seek it in the things that are on earth. And if you think about this, you're like, why does Paul have to tell this to Christians? Don't they know that they're raised in Christ? But he has to tell Christians this because our hearts are sneaky. And before you know it, our hearts are whispering 
to a relationship, to a, to a job, to a bank account. It's whispering, you are my life. And often we aren't even aware of it until we experience these extreme emotions of either intense anger or, or numbness or depression. And these emotions, we can consider them as, as just red alerts. Red alert that your heart has probably set itself, set itself on something earthly for life. And that is inherently unstable. And so, of course, when that thing is under threat, when that thing is vulnerable, we're undone. But here's, here's where repentance kicks in by God's grace. And we'll consider this in slow motion. Slow motion repentance. Step one, identify what it is your heart is saying, you are my life to. That's the first step to repentance. What is it that my heart is looking to in this thing for life? Step two is to put it in its place. You have to look at it and say to it, you are not my life. This shrinks whatever it is that your heart is looking to. It shrinks it down to a normal size so that you can deal with it. Step number three is turn to Christ and say, you are my life. It's, that's reconnecting to Christ. And if you, don't, if you do steps one and two but, and don't do step three, you're just going to go back to an, an old idol or another idol. But repentance is turning your heart from what your heart is looking at for life in earthly things, and it's refixing it on Jesus, who is your life. It's a lot like Scotty Scheffler uh, and, the, and the golfer who won the Masters a few years ago. Um, he had the lead going into the last round of the Masters on Sunday. And historically, that is not a fun spot to be in, to have the lead on a Sunday, because so many golfers have self-destructed on that day and lost their lead. Um, and so Scotty woke up that morning, and he would go on to tell reporters later that day that um, he just woke up that morning undone. He was overwhelmed by the pressure and anxiety of that situation. But then his wife reminded him of where his life was truly found. She told him this, that even if you play terrible and you lose your lead and you totally blow it, that God is, was still sovereign. God was still good. And he would use even that for his glory. Or if Scotty played well and won the Masters, God was still sovereign. God was still good. And he would use that for his glory. So do you see what she was reminding him of? She was saying, winning the masters isn't your life. Golf is not your life. That won't bring ultimate joy and peace. Only your relationship with Christ can do that. He is your life. And do you know what happened? That truth calmed Scotty down and he played golf. And he actually didn't play the best round of his life, but he played well enough to win the masters. And he credited it all to his wife, who reminded him where life, his life truly was found. So you and I desperately need reminders like that in our lives, whether it come through prayer, whether it come through Bible study, or whether it come, comes through friendship. Like just to have a friend like that to speak the truth over us, even when we can't. And college students, I, I might as well make the application since we're all probably, you're all probably thinking about it. Um, you want to marry someone like that. You want to marry someone who can point you back to where life is truly found. And you want to be that kind of spouse who can point people back 
to where your, your life is truly found. So let's consider again, what is that thing in your life, if it's threatened, if you don't have it, you're undone. Paul's logic is to tell it the truth. It's not your life. You can still be sad that you don't have it. You can still desire to get it. You have to take that to the Lord in prayer. But you're no longer undone if you don't have it. Your life is secure in Christ. And so perceiving your life with Christ above fuels your life in Christ below. But given our constant need for repentance, this constant call to to fall and get back up again, what hope do we have? And that's where we have to see this third thing. We need this third thing to maintain our relationship with Christ. We need to preview our reunion with Christ. I'm so happy God gave us verse 4. If you look at verse 4, it says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Now, if if Paul had just left us with verse 3, he would have given us tools to practice the art of repentance, like we just talked about. But we'd probably grow discouraged after a while. After so much losing our focus and having to reset our focus, so much falling to sin and having to confess sin and, and confess faith again in Jesus Christ and reconnect with Jesus Christ, maybe we'd be given to despair how often that would happen. Maybe we'd say things like, am I ever going to get it? Am I ever going to live as I really am in Christ? And the answer, according to verse 4, is there's a day coming. Back in verse 3, we already talked about how our life is hidden with Christ and God. And we talked about how, yes, that means that uh, our life is kept safe. It's indestructible. It's secure. But given the verb choice in verse 4 that's connected to verse 3, That notion of hiddenness most deeply is pointing to the reality that the life that we have and enjoy with Christ now is unseen. You can't see it. It's like what Paul said back in chapter 1 of Colossians, if you can think back there, that the gospel, he's he's describing in chapter 1, the gospel which was hidden for ages is now being revealed. Uh, The same word for appearing here. It's now being revealed through gospel ministry. That is, the gospel which was there all along in the Old Testament, hidden in plain sight, is now, through the preaching of the gospel, through pointing at the finished work of Jesus Christ, is now being made clear, in greater clarity, in greater sureness than ever before. And so, in the same way, Paul's saying, that's going to happen to our life in Christ. That right now, our life is is in Christ. It's secure, but it's unseen. We look... You know, to the world and even to ourselves sometimes, pitiful, rejectable, unimpressive, weak, frail, full of sin and failure. But our life is in Christ. And yes, our, our life in, in Christ can be made visible through acts of love, through words of love. But even that's a dim reflection. But there's a day coming, verse 4 is saying, when Christ who is our life will appear. He will be glorified in plain sight. No more hiddenness. Full clarity. Every eye will see him, Revelation 1 says. And you know what else? You will appear with him in glory. That's just a beautiful truth. He will not appear in glory without you. He will not kick off the new heavens and new earth without you. 
in, in that day, you won't be just legally raised with Christ. You will be actually raised with Christ. You'll have a new glorified body that will be able to stand in God's presence, to see his beauty, and to actually survive that. Your life, which is hidden now in Christ, will be crystal clear to everyone, and he will rejoice over you before all, saying, look, look at the one that I love. So do you see the power previewing your reunion with Christ can have if you're in Christ? It means that if you're going through turmoil right now, you can go through it knowing that somehow this is the great hope that is coming to you. Um, right now, I'm currently in season two of The Mandalorian. That's a Star Wars TV show, if you don't know. Um, I just caught the attention of every fifth grader in the room. Um, but I got frustrated watching season two because there's this one episode where one stressful event happens after the other. Um, the hero, the Mandalorian, his ship crashes, and it happens, you know, he's being chased by bad guys, and it happens to crash on an ice planet, which is bad. Um, but not only that, uh, the ice falls through, and he's now trapped in a cave, which is even worse if you're on an ice planet. And to make matters worse, uh, this cave is filled with spiders who want to kill him. Um, and I'm sitting back watching this, and I'm like, why am I watching this? Uh, I turned this on to relax. Not, I don't need to ramp up more stress in my life. But then I remembered a few facts that kind of calmed me down. Fact number one, this show is on Disney. So there's a 100% chance that there's going to be a happy ending, right? Fact number two, I'm in season two, and I already know that there's going to be a season three. So I know it's not going to end here. The Mandalorian is somehow going to get out of this, and he, he's going to be the star of the next season. So knowing these facts, I could patiently endure this stressful episode. And sure enough, the hero did escape the icy spider cave. Well, our life in Christ is a lot like that. There are episodes in our lives that we wish we could fast forward through because they really are painful. But when you put it all in context, if you remember that God is a better film director than Walt Disney, and that verse 2 is that better happy ending that's coming to you, and that, that verse 4 tells us that there's another season, and you're in it, except it's not just a, a season, it's eternal life. So yes, you can take that, and you can mourn in the sorrows and groan in the turmoils of this life, but we can also put the episode in context of the season. We can put the temporal in the context of the eternal. We can remember where our life is. For the more we set our hearts and minds there, the more we will overflow with his life and joy and peace here below. So where are you this morning? Have you opened up your heart to Christ? Have you opened up your heart to his joy in saving you? And the call of our passage is to be transformed by his beauty. So where do you see life-changing beauty that brings rest, that brings life, that brings joy, that brings peace to your weary heart? The answer is look at the cross. See his love that he would unite himself to you, that he would take on every sin that would condemn you to hell, that he would take on your eternal punishment, and that 
you, all that so that you might be united to him in glory. He is your life. Receive him. Rest in him. Your life with Christ above fuels your life in Christ below. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would continually work in our hearts by the ministry of your spirit to keep our hearts and minds fixed on you, that we might enjoy your life in peace, that we might not only know that you love us, but that we would live like it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.